rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Matt Jolly, and you're listening to the all-new Times Red Box podcast, just like the Opinion podcast, but with a new logo. On the panel today, we've got columnist Robert Crampton, media editor Elizabeth Rigby, and deputy political editor Sam Coates. Here's what we're talking about this week. The Labour Party cannot achieve a coherent position on Trident while Jeremy Corbyn is leader. The moment he said he would never use the nuclear deterrent as a future Prime Minister was the moment Labour lost the next election. Party pragmatists should focus on toppling Corbyn, not cobbling together a futile compromise on Trident renewal. Freedom of information. Tony Blair said he bitterly regretted introducing FOI laws. Chris Grayling said FOI was being misused as a research tool to generate stories for the media. And now David Cameron is carrying out a review with one intention, to limit access to government information, entirely antipathetic to voters' demands for more openness, not less. The backlash has been swift, ferocious and near universal. Will Cameron abandon the fight? Probably, and so he should. Perhaps understandably, the out-of-touch elite who inhabit the Westminster bubble, and I count myself as a proud member of that clique, are all focusing on the known unknown of the European referendum result. Silly us. We ought to spend much more time gaming the unknown unknowns the other side of the European vote, which will dominate this parliament and our lives for the next four years. We saw a dramatic and fatal shift against Labour in Scotland after the independence referendum. Could we see a realignment on the right or the left after this next vote? And what would it mean for the timing of the race to succeed David Cameron, attempts to oust Jeremy Corbyn and the next election? So Robert, let's let's begin with yeah. the Labour Party and Trident. Talk us through right. the, okay. the earlier mess this that week. We had Emily Thornberry, who's the Shadow Defence Secretary and avowed unilateralist, and he's conducting this review into uh, Labour's attitude to Trident renewal. Uh, talking to the PLP, a friend of mine who was there told me it was the most risible performance by a front bench spokesman or woman that he'd ever witnessed, and he's been an MP for twenty twenty odd years. She started talking about how Trident might become obsolete because of the development of underwater drones and so on. She was quickly shot down uh, by uh, Admiral Lord West, uh, former chief of the naval staff, uh, Falkland's hero, uh, who said that that was nonsense and that uh, the development of the drones did not affect the further development of Trident politically. Even somebody a great deal more skillful than Emily Thornbury obviously is could not square this circle. If you have a leader who is a, a vice chair or an honorary president or something of campaign for nuclear disarmament, uh, and who, when asked in September last year whether he would ever use the nuclear deterrent as a future prime minister, said no, categorically, and whose whole political appeal is based on being a man of principle, that is the next election gone. I think I'm right in saying, Sam would know better than me, that for Labour to win the next election, with Scotland gone, four out of the five votes it needs in England are people who voted Tory mm. in 2015. Such people do not vote for someone who can be portrayed and indeed kind of is not serious about the defence of the country. That's that's the election lost right there. The moment the campaign starts, TV interviewer says to Corbyn, Will you, would you use the deterrent? He says no. Game over. 
that's my point. It is Andy Burnham, I think, said this morning these two positions are irreconcilable, and I think he's right. I don't think we should skip over just how bad this meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party was. The I, I used it in the red box email. Mm. Visible, appalling, embarrassing, waffly, incoherent, awful, which are some of the... Insulting, I heard as well, that you turn up to your colleagues and you, without knowing really what you're talking about. It's, yeah, it's and at one, at one stage compared Trident to Spitfires, which yeah. didn't go down yeah. very well. Yeah. Just, just to pick up on Robert's point as well about winning over Tory voters to mm. try and win them back to Labour, I was talking to a MP the other week who had won a marginal seat, so in quite a tight constituency. And he made the point that in the dozens and hundreds of doorstep knocks he'd done through the election, Trident was never mentioned on the doorstep. And his point was that actually what people want is to feel safe. They don't particularly care uh, about how the government do that. They just want to feel safe. But I think what's happening with Trident is it's become this issue whereby it is about the fight for the party. It's about the left of the party who have Mm. been unilateralists for decades finally having a chance to change... Uh, where the party is and they're Mm. so busy trying to win that debate internally within the party that they're actually forgetting the bigger prize which is what they need to do to win back the nation in 2020 and it's deeply deeply worrying for those moderate MPs such as Stephen Kinnock, Andy Burnham etc. Yeah I don't know whether Sam wants to come in but those people they don't think like that that's why they elected Jeremy Corbyn in the first place you know they Pat McFadden said it brilliantly which is why he got sacked the <laughs> Labour Party can be a party of protest or it can be a party of government and there's a very strong and occasionally honourable tradition of the Labour Party being a party of protest Jeremy Corbyn belongs to that but you can't have him run in the country <laughs> and the voters know that yeah. the voters know that and I think the interesting thing is that people might not mention Trident on the doorstep, mm. but they, the impression that they might get about whether or not somebody looks and acts like a prime minister is going to keep them safe. But, and that, also, that's what if we're in a world where a complete nutcase in North Korea has got the bomb, do we not want to have one? It's as simple as that, come the election. What's your, what's your reading of this, Sam? That you're both absolutely right. And But in a sense, this isn't the debate. You say party progress should focus on toppling Corbyn, not cobbling mm. together a futile compromise on student re- renewal. I don't know, 190 of the 230-odd Labour MPs, I think, would say that's exactly what they're doing, but they just mm. don't know how. Because they're I mean, a candidate, you mean? Mm. Well, I mean, how, how, you know, it is all very well to say, get on with toppling Jeremy Corbyn, but, but the, finest, the, the finest minds in the Labour Party have looked mm. at this for the better part of nine months and they don't have a plan and and the discussion the discussion of trident is fine i mean it's a kind of distraction that you know of course it's silly and of, of course it takes you away from the political center but the important bit here is not talking about how bad emily thornbury was it's an amusing kind of one night wonder it is how do you get rid of this man and and the and and pragmatists in the party haven't got a plan they are not united they don't know which of the various half mechanisms that might work could be used against him. But most of all, you've got the great big problem that the Labour Party now has 250,000 members, 66% of whom say that Jeremy Corbyn is doing a good job, according to our last YouGov poll of them, and who put Jeremy Corbyn in that place decisively. And if there is any attempt to try and oust him or topple him, will either return Mr Corbyn if he stands again, or somebody else from his wing, because they are determined to reinforce, um, sort of, um, the, to, to, to lock the party in to the left. So 
everybody agrees on Trident. Everybody, you know, amongst the kind of mainstream, you know, you know, well over 100, um, probably approaching 200 MPs agree on this issue. The question is, is not that, it's what do you do about it? And they haven't got an answer. And I, I have wondered about this, about the, the, the grassroots membership. And I was thinking about the Conservative Party the other day. And the way in which in the run up to the 2015 election, there were so many reports about how how few grassroots members that they had, mm. you know, less than 100,000, I think I, you know, and and then you have Labour, which has had this surge in membership on the back of of Jeremy Corbyn running the race in in August. And part of me wonders that what what do you do if you are the PLP, if you're the Parliamentary Labour Party? Because you could argue that, OK, we take on the grassroots and those new members and we do it because actually there are many, many, many Labour voters out there, millions of Labour voters mm. that may not be in that 250,000 but that want to vote Labour, that want a credible but what alternative do you mean by take to on? the... What do you mean well, take on? Well, that they basically, when I say take on, that maybe they just actually try and try and get rid of him and, and, and face them down. But, just, but, just, if they, but, if you, but if you do that... Won't they just return either him or somebody like him to the position? You have to win them around. You can't just say, we're going to ignore what you think. Well, just they just, are, they just are playing devil's advocate for a moment. Mm. The Labour Party lost the election last May. It was open season for anyone who wanted to put forward a sensible, moderate, mm. centrist, pragmatic policy platform. Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper sort of did. Liz Kendall sort of did, but actually mm. just slagged the party off. They didn't win. Jeremy Corbyn won. Yeah. And well, there was, there was the, there a was, new party leader, yeah. having stood on a platform not just last summer, but for the last 30 years of unilateral disarmament, isn't he allowed to just change the party's policy? I mean, you know, and then it, and then take it to a general election and see whether or not the, the country vote for it. He's allowed to, but we'll see the consequences, won't we? I mean, I'm speaking as somebody who, historically, emotionally, if not always intellectually, kind of wants to see Labour win, win elections. And... I know that Harold Wilson and Tony Blair win elections, and Neil Kinnock, Michael Foot, and Jeremy Corbyn don't. Yeah, but I and, think, and, yeah. and he's going to lose this one. And Ed Miliband. But my, think, my point is not yes. that Jeremy Corbyn isn't good enough; it's that the moderates aren't good enough. Yes, I know there was a particular uh, congruence of events at the leadership election. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was Miliband's uh, parting gift to the Labour Party to do this three quid scheme, which allowed a lot of people in who voted for Jeremy Corbyn. And the other was the weakness of the... Uh, the weakness of the others, of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the other, going back historically, was, I think, the failure of the Blairites to win their argument within the Labour Party. I mean, they effectively mounted a coup d'etat within the Labour Party. They never actually convinced the mass membership, did yeah. they? And they, that mass membership is now having its revenge. Excellent. Beth, let's move on now to uh, freedom of information. Talk us through, first of all, why a normal person should care about changes to the rules on freedom of information yeah, freedom of information it's not that immediately sexy is it but it's very very important freedom of information um, allows the public allows journalists uh, allows anyone who wants to actually to put questions into local government into Whitehall into public bodies and ask them questions and ask for information about how our public services are run, about how our government departments are run. And over the years, freedom of information has generated dozens and dozens of really important stories that have held the government to account. And I I dug out a few of them. They are as varied from the beginning of MPs' expenses to 
revelations over potholes and pothole problems, which actually the public really care about. Um, TfL bosses charging taxpayers for £40 bottles of wine. The government being told that uh, of Christmas rail chaos a month before it happened and not doing anything about it. A great one in the Telegraph where half a million home care visits last less than five minutes. Our elderly people have the choice between being washed or fed. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And it's been an invaluable tool to hold the government to account But by the very nature of it, what journalists and the public are trying to do are they're trying to uncover things that the powers that be (laughs) would rather we didn't uncover. And they would like to curtail that and, and take more power back. It's interesting, Tony Blair introduced Freedom of Information Act in 2000. Uh, And then in his memoirs, he said of this decision, and I'll quote him, you idiot, you naive, foolish, irresponsible nincompoop. There is really no description of stupidity, no matter how vivid this is adequate, to describe (laughs) his regrets for giving the people more power and the government slightly less. Well, that's a Blair mistake that most people would agree was a good one to have made. uh, So what's happening now... Um, After the election, David Cameron uh, set up a commission to review FOI. It came after, I don't know if you remember, the uh, Prince Charles spider letters. Mm, There was a big court case whereby the government tried to use a ministerial veto to override the publication of these letters. These letters were letters that Prince Charles had privately written to ministers on a range of policy issues, which made for a a great load of stories for all of ours. But it was very interesting and illuminating about how involved the palace and the future king was in talking to ministers about, um, about policy. After the Supreme Court ruled that these letters should be published, that was the moment a few months later that David Cameron ordered a review. And everyone that looked at this review and the commission that he appointed recognised that this was actually an attempt to water down the Act. And subsequently, there has been a huge backlash, not just from journalists, not just from campaigners such as 38 Degrees, but also from the former head of the civil service, Sir Bob Kerslake, from the information commissioner, Christopher Graham. So it's not the people versus the establishment, if you like. It's actually Mm. really senior figures in the establishment too that are very, very concerned about what Cameron's trying to do. I was going to say that you you kind of caricature this slightly as a a Westminster bubble kind of story. You said, why should a normal person care about it? You can't get more normal than potholes. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think this is actually not one of those types of stories that only a few uh, tens of thousands of people in in London get excited about. I think this is a really, it's got real mass appeal. You know, I mean, we're living in an age of uh, a much more uh, democratic age in terms of social media and people just expect this. Yeah. And and they should have it. Obviously, I'm going to say that as a journalist, you know, we're we're, we are, we're kind of compromised uh, because, uh, you know, when this guy says, uh, Grayling said, research tool to generate stories for the media, our response is, yeah, so Yes, and your point well, is... Even worse than that, Chris Grayling, when he was in opposition, yeah. used FOI to generate stories for the media yeah. to try and embarrass the Labour government yeah. And, yeah. and help get the I mean, if this were If this were coming out of, a, out of a kind of WikiLeaks thing like the Snowden or whatever, then we might, obviously, we might have some sympathy for that. But when it comes out of the fact that you're trying to protect Prince Charles, you know, <laughs> Prince Charles from using... It's precisely the sort of thing that we should know. I've used FOI through my career. I've got some great stories out of it. Um, 
I worry slightly that those people who are quite so clearly on the side of extending it are, are effectively making the argument that there should be no private space in government to conduct confidential discussions while people thrash out working working out what to do. And that by overreaching our side of the argument, we're undermining our side of the argument um, and getting a bit sloppy. So how would we feel if this wasn't Prince Charles, but it was the Queen? Would we think that that ought to be different? Would we think that ought to be private or not private? Is because they're the heir to the throne, that puts them in a completely different camp? Is there an argument that actually all these letters do is go in the bin and aren't terribly important, <laughs> but by publishing them, we're causing a problem. I don't, I don't know, but I mean, it strikes me that some FOI campaigners would be quite happy to live stream cabinet meetings and um, publish all cabinet ministerial correspondence in real time, and that actually it's very hard to make decisions. If you do that, I would never recommend we live stream our morning news conference. Um, uh, and that's just how decisions get made we don't we don't you, you know you see the end product and not necessarily all of the workings so within my, my just slight concern is that within a framework of very much wanting to protect this act are we sure that we know what we think they can do in private and what we should absolutely fight for and i'm not a hundred percent sure that the prince charles letters should be the thing that we go hell for leather to protect because i think it's a fine line when you get to who's the monarch who's the who's the heir to the throne whereas it's what we should be going after and absolutely protecting is to make sure that charges aren't introduced that backdoor attempts by local councils to stop information being um, put out there by claiming their costs are too high and that further exemptions from um, uh, aren't, aren't introduced and there isn't an absolute veto that cannot be overruled by the courts those are the kind of things we should go for but but, but the question is, are, are we, by subcontracting to some of the hardliners in this debate, are we undermining the position that we're coming from? But I think the, the, the point, Sam, of this was exactly what you said right at the end, which is the reason that this debate came about. And actually, a select committee looked at, reviewed FOI in 2012-13 and decided it was still fit for purpose. The issue, I think, that the reason that this came about was because the government was so upset that it felt it had a ministerial veto in absolutely, you know, exceptional circumstances, which was what the Prince Charles letters were. And then in practice, the minister ended up, uh, the Attorney General ended up overruled by the Supreme Court. Do you think the minister should have an absolute veto? And, well, this is why I think... But do do you think he should have an absolute veto? I think that the the credibility of having freedom of information, the whole principle of freedom of information, is that politicians and ministers Can't be the don't have the final, final say, say, that the court has the final say. Mm. And I think in a way that they're in an intractable position here, which is if ministers want to have an absolute veto, then the public, ultimately, if it's one case out of a thousand, will really, really lose trust and faith in the process and so I think it's a really I think it is a really difficult and sticky wicket really that they're playing on but I actually think that in the end what will happen is if anything I think the laws might end up being extended extended them to charities haven't they potentially planning to extend them to charities and they're now under pressure to extend them to private companies that fulfill public sector duties such as some for example some prisons are run by private contractors Mm. and you can't get any information about 
the the conditions in there because it's run by a private contractor or other prisons you can and is that I mean, right? It, that's, that feels a bit like the government extending it into other people being applied to it while possibly tightening up how much we get to find out about what they have up to. Yeah. But let's uh, let's move on now, Sam. Let's talk about your unknown unknowns. What happens? We'll, we'll part the issue of the referendum and because we've talked about that quite a lot in recent weeks but let's talk about what might happen after the referendum no i've got no idea what's going to happen after june if it is june um either on the right or or on the left there's every chance that david cameron and the inside and the remain side could could lose but but let's for a moment presume that they win what happens to ukip what happens to the millions of voters who put ukip as their choice in the general election do what is the point of ukip do those people then uh, try and find a new uh, home for their vote. Um, do they rebrand UKIP? Do they find a new leader? What What does being UKIP mean if you've just if the country has just voted to stay in Europe and settled it at least for a few years? Do those people go off and find a new party, or do they maybe go back and decide the best chance they've got of affecting change in their direction is to meld back into the Conservative Party, drag the Conservative Party to the right? Does the Conservative Party find its numbers swelling again? Um, but that kind of that kind of centre ground of Tory activist opinion is 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 going off to the right. Who knows? I don't know have the answers to any of those questions. And and then there's the question what happens on the left. So I think the lesson from the Scottish referendum was that the Labour Party made a weak argument in favour of uh, the country staying together. The public in Scotland broadly backed that, but then wanted somebody who would stand up for them, acknowledge that it wasn't the greatest Edmund Abandon. Um, uh, and the Scottish team hadn't made the Scottish Labour team hadn't made the greatest possible argument and wanted somebody who was going to protect them better. Could Labour suffer as a consequence of uh, the the referendum? Could we see a surge of the kind of UKIP forces um, into Labour heartlands? That's what Aaron Banks was saying on Saturday that he wanted to capitalise on. Um, and I suspect that referendums do throw kind of political opinion slightly up in the in, in the air. I think the kaleidoscope is about to be shaken. And the prize will be will go to those uh, politicians who can best ride out that and 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 work out what that mood is and then capitalise it. We saw the SNP do that in Scotland after the Indy Ref, um, but I don't know what's going to happen uh, by the end of the year. So, Robert, who do look, you think? The look at the national breakdowns of the of the likely voting is absolutely fascinating because if we do stay in, it's entirely possible that that is as a result of Scottish, Northern Irish, and Welsh. Votes and they could even with us, there could be a slight majority for leaving in England. I think it can go to about 53%. So it could be 51% to leave. But the Scots, the Irish, and the Welsh keep us in. Equally, we could take them out. Yeah. Uh, we, as in the English, me being English. Yeah. Uh, so I think if it goes to 50, the, the, the way the turnout depends on the turnouts and so on, but the way the populations work, 53% out in England could override. Something like sixty-five percent in in yeah. Scotland, seventy-five percent in I think in Northern Ireland, and fifty-five or sixty in Wales. Current polls. Well, imagine what that's going to do. Mm. We take the Scottish out of their beloved European Union. Well, that's an argument for another referendum. Yeah, and then they want to go back in. Yeah, and that was just, yeah, as you say, shaking, the, the, shaking big... the kaleidoscope is is an understatement. It's going to be. It's going to be. That was one of the big issues in the yeah. Scottish referendum: is yeah, whether course, or not they yeah. could get into the EU. Yeah. So it could be a real mess. But let's assume, let's assume <laughs> that we not only stay in, but everybody, yeah. everybody's happy that we stay. That England, England votes just. There's still going to be a lot of fed up Eurosceptics in England. Be a lot of, but what <laughs> happens to you, Kit, Beth? Do you think? Well, I read something absolutely fascinating the other day that said, "I cannot remember the percentage, but." Quite a big percentage of UKIP voters wait for I can everyone, tell you. I can tell you are where. 
pro yeah. EU. It was there was a YouGov poll which had them on twenty eight percent. Twenty eight percent, which right. we we wrote about on Red Box, and it was quite extraordinary. And then Suzanne Evans wrote us a piece, who's the deputy chairman yeah. of UKIP, wrote us a piece saying so, absolute cobblers. Oh right, well she should have been pleased because I think the fact that people support UKIP when they are pro-EU, what does that tell us? It tells us that Suzanne Evans' effort when she wrote that manifesto in the run-up to, a very good manifesto actually, a very comprehensive manifesto in the run-up to the 2015 election, it shows us that actually to many people UKIP isn't just an anti-EU party, it's something else, it's something more. And so my view of that was UKIP could really begin to take those Labour heartlands on a whole range of policies that are not Europe related. So if I was UKIP, I'd be privately having a glass of champagne on the back of that poll. It's, it becomes a sort of English nationalist party, exactly. doesn't it? it re- exactly, that, that, so that. it can rebrand. So one yeah. of the interesting things that Aaron Banks, who is a big UKIP donor, suggested in an interview in the Times on Saturday, was that not only do you sort of try and go into Labour heartlands, but, but you make your USP anti-London political force mm. because London is regarded mm. as other it carries yeah. a huge number of yeah. votes mm. but it is not seen as representative around the rest of the country and I and suspect that there is a and it's not. something quite and it's and it's and it's not gl- mm. gloriously so and um, <laughs> uh, and um, and I think that that could become quite popular and and and, mm. and I wonder whether yeah. Aaron is actually onto something that you yeah. could create a force that defines itself against London, that's yep. popular in the north of England, yep. Yep. Um, sort of express reading heartlands. Yep. And um, and it's not all about Europe anymore. And it doesn't even ni- necessarily need to have Nigel Farage at its at its. Do you think, think it would be better um, if it didn't? Quite, do you think yeah. post, post-referendum... Yeah. I, th- I, think, I think that Nigel Farage is, is, is associated with the kind of post-Thatcherism mm. uh, 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 sort of... Th- um, type of politics that um, it, it might be easier if there was a different figurehead, and but I think that there is, you know, what what else is there in in Aaron Banks's sort of pseudo manifesto? There is a strong alliance with the Corbynist foreign policy. Mm-hmm. He thinks that the interventionist uh, sort of adventures of the last twenty years in British foreign policy are a complete mistake, and he would and basically agree with. So you've got two things that that poll quite popularly. Um, that could provide the basis of a kind of force that we might see post-referendum. Would and, it work? I don't know, but it's quite an interesting idea. And I think also there's more There's more than that, because actually if you think they've got an opportunity there, as Sam says, be in the anti-Westminster bubble party, what about if Cameron Osborne et al. campaign to stay in? What do that huge, massive, really, really virulent Eurosceptic grassroots members mm. do do you see a bigger confe- uh, defection of conservative grassroots into UKIP because they're so disillusioned with their leadership? Crikey, if there's a big political force in this country and they're not part of the Westminster bubble, my head might explode. How on <laughs> earth am I going to cope? <laughs> well, let's just talk. Let's just talk briefly as well about what happens to David Cameron. Let's assume he stays in. That we st- that we vote to stay in the EU. Let's just go along. Along the how long does he stay prime minister for? I don't quite see how it. What was he, he said he would he would serve a second term he, but not a third. But not a third. So he won't so he, go into the 2020 election. As, as part, he won't lead the Tory party into the right. So at some election. point he's got, some to, he's got to go. Otherwise, he's there are some people be. who think that if even if we keep Britain in the EU, he might think, well, that's job done. I'm going to go, leave someone else to pick up the pieces of try to get the Tory party back together. Or does he want, you know, should he stay on till the last possible moment? What's your feeling? My feeling is that he, he should probably stay on not until the last possible moment, but a year, a year before the election. Yeah, I agree with Rob, but I mean... Depending on the way the economy is shaping up. Whichever way this referendum goes, there's going to be a big reconstruction effort in the Tory party afterwards. Mm. And if Cameron wins this election, um, this referendum, and 
and they stay in, he's got a massive job in trying to hold mm. those Eurosceptics close. And the idea that he then triggers a leadership battle when the party is sort of in some sort of post-traumatic EU shock, I just don't think that's, I don't think that will work. I think plan A is 2019, but I think that he's going to face pressure on three fronts. I think there's going to be domestic pressure, family pressure to get out of Downing Street. He's been a leader for over 10 years. I think there's going to be unspoken pressure from other leadership can- candidates to let them kind of get on with it. And I think that there's also a sense that he's done quite a lot of what he came in to politics to do. I think Oliver Letwin would say that 60% of the most recent Tory manifesto is in train. I'm not sure that leaves him with a, a great big job of work left to do. And I'm sure there are some things on social mobility that could be resurrected from the early years, um, the sort of greatest hits of Cameroonism, if you like. But I'm not sure what, what he's going to do. And I suspect that while he tells people he wants to go on, that sense of a vacuum, because the next big thing in politics to come is the Tory leadership contest, which is the election of by 80,000 people of a new prime minister, not just a party leader, is going to dominate. And I think in the face of that, he's going to become quite stuck in it. And I just think it'll come forward to 2018, yeah. been a little bit earlier, as we all just sit there at the September 2016 conference and go, what next? Oh, it's the Tory leadership contest. Oh, is it really three years away? Yeah. I'm not so sure. And we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and you can sign up to the Red Box political email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box forward slash sign up. But for now, from Robert, Beth, Sam and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.